and welcome to Motorpod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode 687. I'm Richard Jarrett. As always, I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Jim McDowell, over in the US of A. Jim, we've been off the radar for a, a week or so, which is uh, our bad, but we've just been very, very busy, both of us. But why don't you tell people where you are and what you're doing? Uh, so I apologize, people, uh, all of you loyal listeners, subscribers for not getting this done. That work thing that actually pays the bills sort of got in the way. So the prior week I had been in Louisiana for work, uh, working a lot of hours and then immediately got home to take the family on vacation. And we are now in Alabama and Gulf Shores at a nice RV resort uh, about two tenths of a mile from the beach. And uh, I am in the nice conference center here talking to Rich to get you guys a show. So nice. Apologies for being late, but uh, I know what Rich has in store on the backside of this. So uh, I think you guys are going to like it a lot. Yeah. So, yeah, just picking up on that, this is not a normal show in the sense that we're a bit delayed. Jim's on the road, as he's just said. So just wanted to fire something out. Just pick up on a couple of bits of news, perhaps have a quick look ahead to the races in Argentina this coming weekend. What I've actually been able to do the weekend just past, however, in terms of just having a quick chat and a recap on the races in Indonesia was I managed to get Gavin Emmett, who will be familiar to a lot of people. He's the lead commentator for BT Sport with their MotoGP coverage in the UK. That might go out in parts of Europe as well. Gavin also was the lead commentator on the Dorna coverage for quite some years as well. Uh, Works alongside Nick Harris, the legendary Nick Harris, for those that remember him. So yeah, Gavin spoke to me on Saturday morning. And we chatted for a good hour and a half. I'll probably edit it down a little bit. So we chatted all things Indonesia, had a little look ahead to Argentina as well. So that will follow immediately on from this. And then Jim and I will do our best work and everything going on in the world aside to get back onto normal schedule once the races this coming weekend are out of the way. But that being said, Jim, shall we just jump into a couple of news items? What what have you got that you want to talk about? Uh, we, I think we need to talk about the fact that I was sweating very profusely during the races for Mandalika with my statement that Yamaha will never win a race. <laughs> I'll just leave it at that. I am still correct on that one. Barely. Just. <laughs> so just. But a couple of things that really stood out for the racing in Mandalika, and it's kind of newsy. It, it has to be the fact that Mark Marquez kind of launched himself to the moon and back with that vicious high side that he had in morning warm-up there for the track yeah so to kind of set the precedent of it marquez was definitely pushing the bike in qualifying he wound up falling twice and he destroyed two bikes so would they probably destroy probably 150 250 000 euro probably easy if not more with both of them within 10 minutes or so yeah the guy just gets right back up and goes again and knows no fear. I mean, there is no fear in the man whatsoever. It is amazing to watch him do it because he crashed basically in the same place in the same way mm. with essentially the same result. I think the first one was at turn 13. I think the second one was at turn 12. Well, then we get to the next day after the qualifying session. He was obviously starting down low. And I think everybody was looking for a charge from Marquez through the pack, right? I, I was. I was waiting for it. We, we thought it was going to happen. However, morning warm-up, he has the most vicious high side that I think I have seen since the old... 500 days it really looked like one of those off throttle on throttle seizures that happened on the old 500s that would just flick you like a matchstick into the universe and away mark went i mean he went and flew and and they had it from every angle that you could possibly imagine 
the onboard was the most amazing because it was gone in a, in a millisecond. He was gone. I mean, no, no ability to hold on to the bars, absolutely nothing. It was just completely gone. And he landed, uh, thank goodness for all the safety equipment that they have. Back in the 80s, that would have been a broken something. Pelvis. But the airbag, yeah. The airbag did its job and it blew out It inflated. Mark hits the ground. It deflates. You know, he doesn't really tumble too much. He, he rolls. He takes a second to get up. Heart and mouth moment a little bit with the guy for me. But you got to realize you hit something like that. You're out of breath. You have knocked all of the wind you have out of you and you need a minute or two to get it back. He got it back, and then he did that wobbly, woozy walk. And you and I have been on this forever. He was concussed. Mm. I, I think it was pretty obvious that he was not of sound mind at that point in time. And then later we found out that the Erda was it Erda? They came with their officials, and they said, hey, you need to go to the hospital and be checked out for a concussion. So good, good on the, the medical team, Erda, the rules, apparently – I don't think it's been us opining it. They haven't changed anything because we've been talking about it. But there's definitely, I think, a change movement going on with concussions, concussion protocol. I'm glad to see it. I'm glad to see that, you know, Mark was declared unfit to race for the weekend because he had no business being on a motorcycle again at all. You know, championship be damned. He didn't need to be on a bike at all. So he was concussed. He's all that. And then we find out uh, a couple of days later, his dilopia yeah. is back, which is that double vision. Now, according to the last things that I saw on Mark's Instagram page, he says that he went back to the same doctor who treated him for the incident that he had back in late December. It's not as bad this time as, was, as it was before. But again, it's rest. It's relaxation. It's no riding. I'm imagining him basically being sat in a locked, darkened room doing nothing, which is going to be killing the kid. And I have no idea if he's going to be cleared. I'm pretty sure he's not going to be cleared for Argentina. I don't think there's any way he can be fit enough for that. Fingers crossed that he will be at Coda. It's a wait and see moment. I'll be at Coda. I'm taking some of my best friends with me. We're going to camp at the track. So I, they all want to see Marquez. <laughs> so hopefully he's there. But if he's not, you know, there's great racing in between. That's what I've got from Marquez. I don't know your thoughts, Rich, on, yeah. on that. Well, just talking Argentina, I had a quick check just before we came on to this call. And so far, there isn't any official word that I've seen from HRC in terms of a replacement rider this coming weekend. But I find it quite hard to believe that Stefan Bradl or somebody won't be on the bike because clearly that bike is still in development and will continue to be in development for some time. So it would make a lot of sense to have Bradl on it for a full race weekend. Yeah, I mean, the last thing I saw just on the Mark Marquez eye trouble that's back again, and unfortunately for him, is the, a doctor saying, whether it was his doctor or, or an expert, then probably it's going to be a couple of months rest up again before it's safe to return. So I don't know. I don't want to preface the talk I had with Gavin too much because obviously that's coming up immediately after this. But, you know, I floated to Gav because Gav knows Mark Marquez very well. The R word, you know, is retirement starting to look as if it's something that has to be considered? Because, you know, you get to the stage with some of these riders, the exception would be somebody like Rossi, who did manage to go on and on and on. But he never really, other than that broken leg, he never really damaged himself too badly. But Mark has a history of crashing a lot and he always crashes fairly big. And obviously we're seeing the culmination now of the fact that when he has these enormous crashes, he's getting this eye trouble coming in. And what you don't want to happen just for the guy's long-term future is that he's left with this for life, you know, if he has a a series of these tumbles. But, you know, Gav was very strong in his opinion. 
And quite rightly so, that only Mark Marquez can make that decision and only he will know what he can and can't bear going forward. And that, But that it is his nature. You know, he made the point, the reason why he's an eight-time world champion is because that is how he rides. It's full attack. And when it works, it's majestic. And when it goes wrong, it's big. So... It's a conundrum, really, with Mark Marquez, but I don't think it's, sorry to say for you and your friends, but I, I think it's a little bit hard to imagine he would be at Cota. But then again, no Mark Marquez and his record there, he will be determined to be there one way or another if he possibly can be. But that's, as you say, Jim, is where the protocols that seem to be taking more seriousness within the organisation now come to the fore in terms of who is allowed to ride. Because the riders will always ride. They'll ride with broken everything if, you're, if they're allowed to. You need somebody there that basically says, no, you're a danger to yourself and to everybody else. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see on this one. Right. I was going to say it. I'll say it. I think this might be the end of his career. This is serious, people. This is very serious. I mean, just from the standpoint of his own personal longevity and health, does he really have anything to prove on a motorcycle? Nope, he does not. He's an eight times world champion and phenomenal racer. Does that make him better than Rossi? Does Rossi better than who knows? It's an argument that we're going to have 10 years from now. It's not an argument to have right now. It's about his health and what he feels he's capable of doing. Does he have the drive to come back? Probably. I would. I mean, the other thing too, and it was something that I read that Paul Spargaro said, that they were using tires from 2018, 2019 from Sepang that are capable of handling that heat. And as Paul said, he said, we didn't have those tires on the bike when we were here in Indonesia for the test. We had different tires. He says, our, you know, Paul made a comment that our bike is probably the best bike on the new Michelin tires, but on the old tires, it was never designed for. Yeah. So did that contribute to Marquez's high side? Paul sir seems to think so. We'll never know, but it was definitely something that was so quick and so fast. It seems like, yeah, that's possible. If that tire is harder with a different construction design to take the heat and you didn't really build your bike around it, we know how sensitive these things are. We we look at Yamaha's woes for, for two years, roughly. So anything's possible in that respect, but it's just one of those things where, you know, I want to see Marquez win one more title. I want him to be on level with Rossi, if not win another one after that. He's still only 29. Mm. If he decides not to race for six months, if he decides to sit out this entire year, decide to come back at 30, he's definitely got the ability to come and win two more world titles and giving his age. So, I mean, that's always a possibility. But Gavin is right. It is Mark Marquez who will make the decision about what he's going to do with his life. And whichever one that he makes, I'll be happy with. Yeah. Because there's there's always going to be someone else who's coming, right? It, I think it's kind of easy to see yourself, or sorry, see myself transition from being a big-time Mark Marquez fan to being a big-time Pedro Acosta fan. Yeah, They're both kind of similar. Of course, one very significant thing that this is going to cause to happen is a delay in the rider market, because now everybody is going to be waiting to see what happens with Marquez and HRC. And that could be something that takes quite some weeks to figure out. I mean, the problem for Mark Marquez, I do feel very sorry for him in this regard. And it's fair to say you could have a crash and seriously damage a leg or an arm and to the extent that you you know you couldn't ride anymore. And we know that he's had terrible trouble with his shoulder for years and years, and then obviously that serious arm break that he went through. The problem he's got, though, is that every time he has a big crash, and he does crash big frequently, there is the risk that he'll be out for weeks and weeks on end because this dilopia is going to keep returning by the looks of it because he's got that soft tissue damage, that critical nerve damage. I don't, you know, obviously I'm not an eye specialist. I don't quite understand what's going on in there. But, you know, if it keeps happening over and over again, it's going to keep happening over and over again. And there is that worry that, does it become permanently damaged to the extent that he would have that for the rest of his life nobody would wish that and that certainly would be career ending so 
Yeah, but the competitive fire and spirit that burns in these guys is so strong that I'm very sure he'll be swinging a leg over the bike and coacher if he possibly can. Whether he should, as we say, I mean, everybody's got an opinion on that. But as you said, Jim, as Gav was very strong in his opinion, quite rightly, Mark Marquez has to make that call. And no pressure from anywhere will have any bearing on that, probably, when all is said and done. It's just a shame, isn't it, really? But, you know, you do figure that probably the likes of Mir and Quattararo are going to hold for a while now in terms of their contract Mm -hmm. talks and decisions. Oh, yeah. HRC suddenly becomes available. Yeah, if an HRC seat comes available, I think you think Mir is the most logical choice to go that direction. Yeah. Quattararo want to go that direction as well it leaves a lot of questions about what's going to happen along the way uh it it just throws everything into major chaos as far as who's going to put pen to paper uh to decide what's going on hrc has to make a decision about what they want to do too so you know again it seems like they talk about like how the bike had no front end feel and maybe it has feel if you have the other tires yeah you know again what paul says that's one of the things is like are you as a rider looking at that going well do I want to get myself flicked to the moon or do I want the Ducati or, you know, the Suzuki seems to be better, but not the best yet. And I was kind of shocked at where Suzuki was this week. Didn't really think that they would be where they were. Mm. Well, you know, uh, as we say, Jim, they've changed a few things and now they've got a few other problems that they got to deal with. Simon Crayfar is certainly of the opinion, as you would have heard, that they're running into fuel management problems because they're getting more power out of that motor uh, and, mm-hmm. the, and that the shape shift is working much better. So they're getting more kind of power down as they get out of turns as well, all of which is probably leading them into some difficulties with fuel at the moment. And mm-hmm. that seems like a very credible argument. But certainly Suzuki, much like Honda, suffered with the tyre change that was made as a relatively late call. But it must be said, in defence of Michelin, Polis Bar was quite vocal in his criticism of the tyre change, but somebody pointed out, commonality of name coincidentally, David Emmett, again, who we refer to quite a lot, but he's obviously one of the go-to guys in terms of informed opinion. And he made the point quite rightly that the Mandalika test that occurred was for Michelin's benefit, not really for the team's. So the data that they gathered there led them to the conclusion that they needed to change the construction of the tyres. Clearly, it worked for some people or, or affected some people less than others. And But Honda in particular and Suzuki as well clearly did suffer as a result of that. And anybody that was watching the practice sessions, I mean, Mark has had numerous times when the rear tried coming around on him. It was just mostly at slow speed corners. And then obviously in the warm up session, it happened at 120, 130 miles an hour. And as you said, Jim, there was just no saving that bike. Off throttle, gone. Bang, just like that. Mm-hmm. So no way of saving it. I think also we have to take into account that they did do a huge amount of resurfacing that may have swayed Michelin's decision. I think, I believe I'm correct in this. If I'm not, let me know, guys, that if you have a freshly paved asphalt underneath high sun or potential high warmth, it will absorb far more temperature, which means the track temperature could have been so high that it would have been outside of a working window that Michelin said, "Mm, no, that's too risky. We need to do a different construction. There's no blame from my side at all at Michelin and what they've done. It's just there. It's like anything else. Even Bridgestone had criticism about different tires for different bikes fit different things. Yeah, It's part of it. That even happens in Formula One. People will say they probably benefited a different car than another car. And, you know, it's just the way it goes. 
with new tracks it, it takes a little while for teams to get the data over a two or three visits you know in, in seasons and dial in a base setting that will work so this is really just ironing out the gremlins in in the data and the systems i suppose so two or three years down the track literally you know they won't be facing one would assume quite so much trouble uh, and also as you said jim i mean the track was fairly new as it was half of it's been relayed almost and normally you would want several months for that to bed in and to cure it's complicated by the conditions there the track was breaking up again we found out um, and it was the rain really that came actually uh, the motor gp race to go ahead i believe i think quite possibly it might not have even happened uh, had it not been for the rain cooling things down and slowing things down a little bit so you could say well we were lucky on that one again talk to gav about that a fair bit in, in the interview coming up but yeah just a wild weekend really completely that's the other thing i want to mention is is the, the temperature in the track i was shocked to learn that they were shortening the length of the moto two race they even cut the moto three race or no it ran full no, that distance. ran to full it, distance. It, it ran full distance, yep. ran full distance. but they said oh we're going to cut the distance to two-thirds to like 16 laps for moto two like ooh, okay you know and then we're like well because of the, it just said because of the conditions and i'm like yeah it might be hot but these guys train for this this is not a human issue it must be a track issue and then we found out that even the moto gp race is going to be cut to three quarters distance because of the track conditions again with starting to crumble and peel and and that's not good and then we got the rain which I think you're correct. I feel that without the rain, we would not have had a MotoGP race. I, this was probably on the order of the Coda disaster from last year of everybody saying, nah, this isn't safe. We need, I really, yeah, we're only going to go do whatever it was, 15 laps or whatever. Yeah. But it was like, yeah, we're really not there. But the rain race was fantastic. It was a very good race. I thought about it. I, for those who've never tried to race in the rain, and granted, I only ever did it at a club level and whatnot, but I thought the only way to describe what it's like in those first couple of laps would be to get into your car on the dual carriageway or the highway, have a nice good rain coming down, nice wet road, and try to go past a, a big lorry or a semi here in the U.S. and don't turn your windshield wipers on. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's what it's like. That's what those guys were dealing with. So if you think these guys don't learn tracks very quickly and that they don't know which way it's all going, they do. And just that in itself is amazing that they can do that. But it was always going to be about who got out front and who was able to stay out front and stay ahead of it. And that was how the race shaped up. It yeah. was about who got to the front. And it was a good race. You know, the very lap good, times were, were incredible, weren't they? The grip, as we saw from the World Superbike race last season, the grip levels in the wet are almost comparable with the grip levels in the dry. In fact, in some respects, you might some of the riders might have said it was it was safer in the wet than it was in the dry, given what we've just been talking about. I think one thing that, again, has occurred to me since talking or, or since watching the race and talking to Gavin is that I wonder whether this might give Fabio Quattararo a slightly false confidence the next time he turns up at a track and it's wet, because that track was so great that he didn't suffer his usual issues in a wet race if he turns up at Le Mans a few mm. weeks down the road and it's nine degrees and wet he might find himself back in the, the the problems that he suffered in the past and his hatred of the wet conditions but he, he rode a superb race though didn't he Quattararo yes he did I was pleasantly surprised at how good Quattararo did in the rain again I was nervous on the couch watching that thinking my statement you know, not going to win a race all year is going to go out the window if there was a place that they could do it it was probably that I just didn't really think they'd get the rain uh, and that really did change that part of it but it also made 
another brand looked very good in the way. And they were good regardless. Let's talk about KTM real quick. Mm. Brad Bender, he qualified extremely well he, with a KTM. Uh, Brad looked like a Saturday man as opposed to his normal Sunday man title that we sort of tagged him with. And then Oliveira just came rocketing through because he looked good on there as well with his time. And Oliveira as a wet rider as well. And, you know, kind of ran off on everybody. Yeah. So it was interesting. I mean, it sort of all the races sort of had runaways, to be quite honest. Yes, that's true. And that is slightly unusual. Again, Very whether unusual. that's a factor of a new track and people either gel with it or, you know, or some people super gel with it and others take a bit more time. I guess we'll find that out over seasons to come. But overall, I thought it was a good weekend. I'm not quite sure that the shaman and the money that she would have been paid, but to try and keep the rain away. But that's a separate issue. Um yeah. Yeah, yes. Oliveira, I, I think I'd be very surprised if he doesn't get re-signed at KTM now, because oh, yeah. let's not forget, I mean, he is a four-time MotoGP winner. There are some very famous people that have been in the sport in the past. He never won four races, and he's won in a dry as well, let's not forget. So it's not that he's just a one-trick pony in terms of damp conditions. So I'd be very sad for him if he didn't get retained by KTM, but let's see. Ducati, a little bit all over the place again, weren't they? I suppose we have to say it's not been the start to the year that Banyaya was hoping for for the the takeaway from or the other takeaway i should say from the race for me really was darren binder and what a brilliant yes, job he, that he did on the yamaha yeah i think he I think he was on the right bike at the right time it, again you could throw a lot of the electronics at it to help you in the wet i think he's also can ride in the wet his brother rides well in the wet mm. so they seem to be good there in wet races will find the people who are the best with throttle control that innate feel that understand what the bike is doing. That's why Marquez was always at the front in the rain. It's why I think why Bender is in the front when it rains. I think he's just got great, great feel. Oliveira is that way too. They have mm-hmm. feel. Mm-hmm. The guys like that go to the front. Fabio doesn't really have that feel. I think you're right. Fabio's feel there was masked by the incredible grip that that surface gives in the wet. So it kind of mixed it up, shuffled it up. It was Ducati at least looked like having their 2022 bike be fast again. They went back to a more baseline setup, I heard, mm. that they had had previously. They were had moved in a direction of what they thought was the appropriate looking at data, which I kind of believe that that was not driven by any of the riders, but was driven by the data that Ducati had collected and said, we need to move this way, which was not the way to go. They moved back. I did expect Benyaya to do better than he did. That was not any kind of race that I would have expected him to have had. Mm. So it's looking not difficult because this season is going to be obviously up and down and crazy. But at some point, we will finally get back to Europe and we'll start to develop a pecking order. Mandalika, we say it all the time. We start out in the desert there at Qatar. It's a bit of an outlier. Weird things happen. It, it just does. It's the yes. same track. It's the same 25 points, but just different things happen there. For whatever magical reason, things happen. Mandalika, brand new. Nobody's really got a setup sheet. It's who learns tracks faster. We haven't been to Argentina in two years plus. Mm-hmm. So I have no idea what the track conditions are going to be like. It could be really super dirty. It's going to have to rubber back in. I don't think that circuit is used very much. So that's going to be interesting for that portion to see what happens there. So that's going to be another sort of outlier kind of race again. Uh, Michelin hasn't been there with tires in two years. Bikes have progressed. So we'll see what happens. And then we go back to Coda. And Coda is now back at its normal spot, sort of early part of April, which we do have some data from. So things might look a little more normal at Coda, but it won't be until they, they show up. I think a Hareth. We all know that track. We all have data. We all have settings on the bikes. And I think we'll start to see the Ducatis sort of come back to the front. It'll depend on 
I, I, I expect pole to be towards the front at Jerez on the new Honda. Uh, Quattro will definitely be there. And I think we'll see things sort of straight back up. And I think you're going to get ready for a real, real boxing match. It's going to be a lot of see who gets on with the bikes, with the tires and see who doesn't. Yeah, I think things will start to stabilize a little bit once we get into the European season. Gavin will also kind of confirm that his view that that's when the season really starts to get going. As you say, Jim, the, the track in Argentina is hardly ever used. So it's going to be incredibly dirty and take a bit of time or for everybody to get up to speed. And Cota, well, they've got a lot of track resurfacing work that's been done. So that might potentially throw a little bit of a curveball, I suppose, into people's understanding for how to set the bikes up. Maybe, maybe not. Probably not a huge factor. It should be pretty rubbered in. They they do use that track quite a lot uh, with driving schools, other smaller series do use it. So I, I feel like it's going to be fairly well rubbered in. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's going to be, is it's, it's going to be new asphalt in a big section of it versus old asphalt otherwhere. So it's going to be a little tricky to get the setup exactly spot on, but it's going to be closer to normal than, than what we think. One little piece of news that we ought to just pick up on, and it's relevant to perhaps to Ducati or at least the 2022 Ducati's performance so far this season, which is to say that the front ride height or shapeshifter device has been outlawed from next year onwards. The question, in which I think we're all pretty happy about, apart from Ducati, I am. of course. However, having said all of that, I mean, I think there's a reasonable train of thought, which is that the front ride height has kind of led Ducati to some extent into their current underperformance because the riders have struggled with it it changes the dynamics of the bike setup significantly and nobody's been very comfortable with it so the question that comes into my mind is that clearly none of the other factories are going to waste money developing their own systems or i would be surprised if they did given that they're going to be banned at the end of the season and given ducati's troubles with it and the riders dislike of it do they even bother putting it back on the bike so i wonder if we will start to see them kind of backward engineer a little bit to get the bike to a kind of a base setup that doesn't include the front shape-shifting device and that that might might then allow them to start to progress forwards a little bit. Uh, I think so. I think you're right in that. It was obviously, again, the cool wizardry that only Gigi Delinia can give us. It's a functional device. However, it either needs to have a whole lot more development or it needs to be a electro servo driven kind of a system as opposed to the mechanical type system that they're allowed to have. I'm not sure exactly how the front shape shifter works. The back, I can understand how they can do that with a bit of mechanical wizardry. The front, I'm still boggling my mind a little bit to try to understand exactly how it's done. It's obviously takes a long time to develop. Uh, I'm sure they've been working on it for quite some time and they thought it was ready for prime time. And there are times when you can spend considerable time with a computer and a simulation and do some basic testing and laps around take name your pick of any of the italian tracks where they're testing at and you think you got it and it doesn't work for the guys that are that are on there i would never have understood how you could use it in a race situation just because it would change the feel of the front end because you're changing the trail and and you're changing the ride height and so that changes distinctly changes how things happen. It's enough to just break hard and collapse the front suspension, which will then pull the front wheel closer to the frame, which shortens the trail. That is a very difficult thing to understand and wrap your mind around, but it's very linear. 
right? Mm. As you break harder, the trail decreases in a linear fashion, which I'm assuming was how the system worked, however way that it did. But it probably gave that feel of the, if you guys can remember the old Elf Honda with the single front swing arm on the front that Ron Haslam rode in the 80s. And please, I don't remember what years, but it was in the 80s. Look it up, find it on YouTube. That bike had no front end feel because it, would, it wouldn't it would dive when you broke. That was the problem. And I'm wondering if that's what happens here is that the system decides to collapse itself in whatever way, however it knows. And suddenly you're expecting it to, when you apply the brakes, to have that dive or have that feel of whatever you're looking for. And it's not there. And I wonder if that's why all these guys don't like what they have. And I think that's where the danger part is. There's not that feedback that you're looking for that as a normal human being and how we perceive things with our brains, it's not right. It's just backwards and good to see it go because no one needs to spend the time and the money for something that's not really an effective device or is prone to having a an issue i'm not quite sure why it's been banned whether it's purely on cost grounds or whether it's on safety grounds i I haven't kind of dug into that level of detail but anyway it's going to be gone which i personally i'm pretty happy about except in all the discussion that we've had on this issue about you know if it makes the bike faster although debatably it's not made the bike faster in theory possibly it does but anyway it's going to be gone and i I'm pretty sure that it wasn't even on the bikes in Mandalika. So it's quite possible that if Ducati do roll it out and give it a bit more of a try to see if they can get a competitive edge, that it might not reappear until we're back into the European season where they can kind of manage the whole logistics around that much easier than on the flyaways. So I guess we'll have to wait and see on that one. But that's a fairly big piece of news. And of course, what you are always talking about, Jim, happened to Brad Binder on the Sunday race in Mandalika, which was that his rear shapeshifter stuck in the down position. So he rode mm. pretty much the whole race with the down rear of the bike squatted so given that he finished eighth that was a pretty miraculous ride i would suggest uh helped just by the fact that it's in the wet so yeah, yeah. you're being in that down position it allows you to get more grip to get out of there just uh, doesn't want to turn yeah so he adapted to that the only other piece of news going into the indonesia round and unfortunately it remains the case for this weekend is that john mcphee had a training accident and damaged some vertebrae not i mean that's a serious injury whichever way you cut it but not super super serious it's just a question of time for the bones to fuse together again he was hoping to get back to argentina as you would have expected but he's been ruled out again for this weekend so given that this is mcphee's last season in moto 3 purely on age grounds you know the more races he misses the harder it's going to be for him to make an impact in the championship so very unfortunate as always he's sort of dogged by bad luck John McPhee yeah hopefully John gets back it was good to know that there was no I'll say I'll say spinal cord damage yeah in there it was just simply you cracked a couple of bones which is again severe it's your back but it looks like he's going to heal and hopefully John gets back I think that he's with the proper team and i think john could rip off two three four five good races towards the end of the year and that's going to be enough to put him in the shopping window for a moto two team so i i hold out hope that john will get a moto two ride next year yeah me too I'm, I'm pretty sure he will i mean he did a guest ride in moto two if you remember in aragon last year yes looked he did well did a pretty good job i i think most people felt certainly i thought he did a good job so there isn't really an awful lot more to say about indonesia i don't think jim because a lot of it i cover with gavin in the talk that's coming up yep. it'll be interesting to see what happens this weekend in in argentina uh, we don't know what the weather will do but it tends to be a dry race i think they've had a couple of wet races there so you never know any thoughts going into the weekend ahead 
I feel like Argentina is going to be a Ducati KTM battle. It's a relatively fast track with two fast straights. There's not too much change of direction that's very quick. So that's going to kind of take this advantage the Suzuki and the Yamaha have away. If it's dry, I'm going to say Ben Yaya will be at the front and will probably win. But I think it might be two KTMs chasing him. Yeah. So it's, it's we'll, we'll see what happens. But that's my feel. Yeah, I'd, I'd go along with everything you just said there. I think KTM are surprising people. I mean, I think we thought that they were going to be back towards the front. But I'm not really sure anybody quite thought that they were going to be this far at the front at this stage of the season. So mm-hmm. they're in a very good position. And I think that the influence of Francesco Guidotti is already making itself felt in that team in terms of just steady the ship not confusing themselves with too many development parts and so on just working on a setting and using two fantastic riders that they've got so i hope i think that's paying dividends that approach i believe so yeah i think it's more of instead of being the engineering team that has all the parts and pieces and bits and wizardry that they want to throw at it it's like no 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 we must methodically work ourselves through these bits and pieces and see what we have and it is showing dividends i mean it'd be different if it was just one ktm was fast but both ktms are fast both Oliver and bender are fast and we have to remind ourselves that Oliver is still getting over his hand wrist injury that he had so the future is bright bright orange <laughs> In fact. bright orange <laughs> Okay, we've got BSB and World Superbike is actually fast approaching as well. There's been some testing going on. In fact, there's testing going on at Snetterton for BSB. So those two seasons are going to be fast upon us as well. I think what we're going to aim to do is come back with a show, hopefully around middle part of next week, Jim, once Argentina's out of the way, before you get on another plane, yet another plane, <laughs> to head off to Austin. And so we'll pick, we'll pick up on the news, we'll pick up on the races, we'll do the usual subscriber thanks and just the, the usual kind of administrative things. So apologies that we've been late with this show. Hopefully the interview that follows between myself and Gavin Emmett will be a good one and people will enjoy that. Please give us some feedback or send us some questions on the email, motopod at motopodcast.com. Jim, anything just to finish off from your side before we zoom zoom it? Just to uh, just to finish off, I will be at Coda. I'll be there. Be there all three days. Again, we're camping at the track, uh, so we're going to be there for the duration of it all. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Um, anybody who's there wants to meet up, just uh, let me know. You can get me at Moto RGV on Twitter and Instagram. You can also just send something to uh, Motopod at motopodcast.com. And, uh, you know, maybe we can sit down and have a beer, talk some racing. It'll be good time that'd be good wouldn't it okay well i think with all that being said we'll jump into the interview with gavin from bt sport and as you always like to say jim everybody stay safe ride safe and we'll catch you on the other side of the argentina races cheers for now yes Hello, Motopod listeners. Now, sorry, we're a little bit late coming to this. Uh, Jim's been busy this week. So rather than doing the regular race rundown show, we decided to get another world famous pundit on to join us. And I'm very, very pleased to say Gavin Emmett of BT Sport fame is online with me. I'm recording this on Saturday, 23rd of March. So Gav, a very warm welcome to the show. Thanks ever so much for giving up your time this morning. First off, I hope you're feeling better because you tested positive for COVID just before the Indonesia round. Yeah, I, thank you very much. Very uh, kind, very nice intro as well. Very pleasant to say uh, world famous. I always thought he was famous in his own backyard. That's about it, to be honest. Uh, but uh, I did unfortunately miss out on uh, Indonesia, but I still covered it. <laughs> I still had to compensate for the entire weekend. Yeah. Um, from actually from it wasn't from in here because I had to have I've not got a wired connection up here. It's my office in the loft. So uh, but yeah, I did it from my front room, which was uh, quite good fun. Quite honestly, the tech is amazing to be able to do that as you can 
appreciate uh, doing this. It's not always easy. Like we've had our issues here with audio and video, just trying yes, to get stuff as always. in here and there. Yeah. But then try to do that and make sure it's broadcast at the same time as the footage is coming back from Indonesia at the same time as Neil Hodgson, Michael Leverton, Sylvain Gintolia commentating with you in on site. It was, uh, it, it blew my mind anyway. But A challenge. I still, uh, still yeah. loved it. But I'm, yeah, I was fine all the time. I had COVID, no symptoms, and uh, raring. Hopefully, because uh, sometimes they linger, don't they? All your symptoms for PCR. I've got to do a PCR test today or tomorrow. No, tomorrow morning to uh, go to Argentina. Yeah, so, yeah. Fingers crossed on that one. I understand that the sort of the trip out to the Mandalika circuit is a, a bit of an arduous trek, but uh, it must have been pretty gutting to miss Indonesia for various reasons, including the blue sea, the sandy beaches, <laughs> not to mention the nice weather. Well, I mean, I'm not the greatest in any temperature over 20 degrees, if I'm honest. Oh. Uh, so I, I didn't miss that. <laughs> Although I generally I'd been sat in an air-conditioned booth, so I probably would have been uh, mocking the rest of the team for that one. But uh, yeah, the trip's arduous out there. But it's not that dissimilar to going out to Argentina. Argentina, the Termas circuit, is another three-hour flight on from Buenos Aires. Mm. But there aren't that many flights up to there. So you either have to get on with one of the charters that are being laid on by Dorna, which again, doesn't always fit in with your flight. So there's no direct flights from London to Buenos Aires at the moment. So we have to go via Sao Paulo. So it's, it's, um, again, it's a pleasure to do it. But those are the bits where you go, if I miss that bit, I don't mind. (laughs) Yeah. Being on site though, I I hugely miss that. And when you're in the paddock, it changes your whole uh, focus on a race weekend. No, I'm sure. You feel it so much more. Actually, just uh, I'm already going off script, but uh, one of the things that I think doesn't often get mentioned a great deal when you look at races like Indonesia, and I guess Malaysia would be another good example, and that is that the riders in that heat and that humidity, fully leathered up, helmets it must be i mean i know these are top level athletes but you know the fittest guys in the world but it must be excruciating conditions to work in and it's not just that if you imagine you go out on a nice day and you go out riding on your bike and actually it's quite lovely that breeze isn't it that comes through and keeps you cool as you're riding along you're still warm and everything anyone who's ridden in south europe you're still warm but there's enough of a breeze over in Sepang or in uh, Indonesia or where are the other places? Actually, I've, I've known it humid in Barcelona mm. at times when I used to live over there and you get there in summer and it's, it's that humidity. And the problem is then you, the air that's coming in is hot and it, yeah. it doesn't cool you down at all. No relief so at all. Humid, yeah. but exactly. It doesn't work with the sweat. And put on top of that, you sat on top of a 300 brake horsepower motorcycle pumping out heat you know, I mean, it's not perhaps like, or maybe it is, but I remember what um, Troy Bayliss used to say and, and Loris Caparotti when they first got on the first iteration of the Desmosedici, mm. that you would come off with burns. You yeah. would come off with, you know, pretty much third. In fact, Neil Hodgson said the same thing in commentary. And it's it's like riding and then someone holding a hot hairdryer in front of you. And I bet it's horrific. So I bet in some ways they were quite thankful of that rain on, on Sunday because well, it takes the edge off. I think quite a lot of people will get onto that. I think probably the rain saved quite a lot of people, didn't it? But yeah, that 03 well, Ducati was famous for, for inflicting burns on people, wasn't it? They had yeah, real problems. Yeah. That's why all the drill holes started to appear in the fairings, wasn't it? After the first Absolutely. round or two. Yeah. Um, compare out of it. Yeah. As I tend to do with uh, the Motopod shows when we get people back on, I like to refresh the long-term listeners' memories. So uh, I just mentioned to you a minute ago, but digging back through the archives, bear in mind, this is going to be episode 687. So I went wow. back and found that you popped up I think it was about episode 257 or something if memory serves anyway it was at 2012 in Laguna Seca uh, it was yourself and your then co-commentator at Dorna 
Nick Harris, and you were talking to ex-show host uh, Jules Chisek. And it was funny because I listened back to a little bit of the interview. It was only a fairly briefish spot that you did, but you were talking about the birth of the CRT and how it was almost an unimaginable thought to have a full grid of works bikes which kind of fast forward 10 years, which is what we are now, not quite got a full grid of fully works bikes, it's true, but we're not far off. I mean, a lot has changed, hasn't it? And CRT did its job, didn't it? I don't know. I, I haven't listened back to that because it was a long time ago. I mean, 10 years ago, that scares me. Yeah. That, that's only half my career <laughs> since then. But yeah, I don't know if we'd have said at the time, but we always felt it was a long game. We always felt CRT wasn't the end point. CRT wasn't the, oh, this is the direction of travel for the sport. It was a way of muscling the factories in to back in this sport and getting fully involved. It was a way of saying, look, we can do this sport without you, but we'd yeah. much rather do it with you. And I think it worked, didn't it? Look, look at where we're at now, where yeah. you go right down to the back of the field and you know, you're know you talking about people who are race winners and can, you know, can challenge at the front and on any given day anyone can effectively win can't yeah, they they've got I think the so. package underneath them yep. pretty much to win whether they're experienced and all that counts that that's obviously part of it but ultimately everyone is capable of of, uh, of winning and, and you could not say that back then i mean you haven't been able to say that i don't think ever no I, well i mean people tend to look back through the old rose tinted specs don't they uh, you know the, the sort of the 500 era which was great but at any given point there's probably only six bikes that ever were going to likely win a race uh, back then uh, and you know if it's that, never been as good that. as and, now and in terms of head to head battles as well there were, they were few and far between it made them stand out it meant that when you did have them they were great races classic races of all time but they, they weren't week in week out because generally someone would get it sorted and pull away or someone might you know but you'd have different paces of during the race it's not often you'd get races where people are sticking side by side the entire race i just the aragon race i saw it back the other day which i loved last year the the head-to-head between banyara and marcus couldn't be settled yeah. you know that sort of thing you didn't get that often and, and we're getting it pretty much every round aren't we? yeah now time is finite so i can't impose on you too long on a saturday morning so but i did just want to just for the interest of the listeners uh, i'm always quite keen with people like yourself just to have a very quick dive into how it is you've managed to get what many people uh, i was talking to greg haynes a few weeks ago so i kind of described his job as a you know one of the plum jobs in the world for a bike fan <laughs> now i know obviously it's not all it's all it's uh, cracked up to be because as we were just talking about you're traveling around and away from home away from family and so on but i think you started off in sports journalism and then you sort of alternated a bit between dorna had a stint at the bbc then back to dorna and ultimately i think 2014 was it when you arrived at bt sport when they presumably when they initially took on the the rights in the uk anyway for moto gp and that's where you've been ever since so there's been quite a journey can you tell us a little bit about that yeah, it's a circuitous route round. But uh, yeah, it, it started off with a phone call from Matt Roberts, who was a, a friend of mine from university. We did similar course at university and he was working at Dorna, got on the phone. They needed someone else who could speak Spanish and French and languages and write. And I was living in Barcelona in Matt's uh, one bedroom studio flat so, you know, right. a week later. Um, Matt Roberts, again, if people don't know, he presented on the BBC, does Eurosport now for World yep. and British Superbike, that kind of thing. Long time friend of mine, but all 
also we've worked together at Dawn at that point. We used to run the website, MotoGP.com, right back in its infancy when Dorna took it back in-house. Uh, and from there, I actually moved. He stuck more with the website side of things and the writing. I was more in the TV side. But then we both did the commentary with Nick Harris on a race day. And from there, I was loaned out to the BBC, like Azzy Farney did, work for Dorna. Matt did it actually as well. Work for Dorna, but on a Sunday and a couple of times during the weekend, you do things for the BBC. Yeah, And that's how I got to know Susie very well, uh, Susie Perry working on that. And just, uh, I, I then stayed at Dorna. Uh, I was their communications director, so in charge of the, the media for the sport and dealing with the press, the press relations, that kind of thing. All the while doing commentary. And then it got to a point where there was too much of that job and too much of commentary. And I said, look, I'd much rather stay with the TV side of things. So kept doing the commentary and then BT Sport uh, appeared after the BBC contract. Uh, so almost myself and Matt switched there. Yeah. I, I went and worked for, for BT and I've been there ever since. And do you know what? Pretty much, it's incredible that we're this far down the line with BT. Is it eight seasons now? I think that we've uh, yes, yeah, we've been doing it, and uh, the contract with them is for another couple of years after this one. Mm-hmm. So I think it'd be ten years by the time of the end of the contract. And who knows? Who knows what the future holds on that front? But absolutely loving it, loving what uh, I'm doing at the moment. Obviously, moved into lead commentary now. Yes, having done presenting, reporting, and a bit of everything, and uh, just enjoying it. Um, I'd still love it, the racing, as much as if it was, you know, the first time when I started back in in 2001. Listening back to that Laguna Seiko interview that that we just referred to, you mentioned something I guess is is still the case, and it must be very frustrating, is the fact that you're stuck in a commentary booth most of the time. So do you get out (laughs) onto track to see the bikes very much because of course that's a key part of being able to transmit to the listeners and the viewers what's going on isn't it is understanding the sort of the dynamics and the when I go to Silverstone every year for example there's just nothing better than the smell of those bikes when they come past you for the first time these sort of million dollar plus sort of preemed and you know pampered machines and they come out and the noise the smell the sheer speed my sort of frustration a little bit with TV coverage is that hardest thing to capture, which is just the sheer speed and violence of the things. It's very hard to capture that on camera, isn't it? Oh, it, it, it is. Everything TV foreshortens it all into a flat screen in front of you. So, um, yeah, that is hard to capture. I don't I don't get that many opportunities. I'll, I'll often try in the warm-up. But obviously, we haven't been on site for the last couple of years, for starters. Mm. But that's the only chance. It's the only sessions that I don't commentate on is the warm-up. So I'm commentating on every single session. I'll go out and see the rookies when they're out or the Asia Talent Cup or whoever's on site. But I'll generally tend to go, depending on where the TV compound is, and try and have a look down pit lane on a Sunday morning in the warm-up uh, yeah. and have a look at things, how things are developing. But yeah, I, I get this a similar kind of view that a lot of people at home get watching it on TV. That's what I've got for much of the weekend, which is hugely frustrating. But that's the job, isn't it? Ultimately, yeah. to yeah. Uh, to be there, whether you're up in a commentary with it, it's just so happened that that's the way it's fallen at the moment. And you know, we're bringing different people in, like Charlie Hiscott, and there will be, I'm sure, times. It's just because since there was a change from from Keith Ewan. Uh, who was commentating we haven't got a reduced team but we just swap things around so whereas myself and Keith and, and Julian actually Ryder used to share commentary duties and we'd switch in and out yeah we haven't got that facility at the moment and none of the other lads I suppose Neil and, and Michael and Sylvan have felt they want to you know go in they've also got tons of other things they're doing so it's just 
trying to get some time out of the booth would be a nice thought, but at the moment that's not, not possible. Warm ups, <laughs> yeah, which is <laughs> which is a shame. But I do yeah. go down on it. I'll see go down. I'll be in pit lane on a Thursday after the end of the day as well. I'm making sure I speak to everyone. I mean, start of the day is often a good one too mm. um, before everyone goes out on track. Let's talk a bit of racing then. So MotoGP 2022. I think you know we all say on the show it's going to be the best season ever. <laughs> Quite often that has proven to be the case in recent years. But if we look at Qatar, also it's a bit of an outlier race, Qatar, isn't it? Because it's a night race. It's not really a great indicator of form through the year. And do you subscribe to this view that the early season flyaways, you can't read too much into form and that the season only really gets going in Europe? Do you think that's still the case or is it just flat? I mean, it's flat out from the word go. We know that. But what's your view on that? Yeah, I don't think you can read form until I don't even think back to Europe because I think Portimao is such an outlier, such a quirk of a circuit. It's when you get to Jerez that's where you get these curb to curb kind of tracks that uh, a lot of the Spanish Italians have grown up on. And, you know, mm. it's almost like a home to them. And they are quirky places. Qatar, as you say, is a bit of a funny one. And it's a lovely layout as such, but, you know, strange conditions. And it was even a bit stranger this year because it wasn't as hot during the day. It made things a, a bit more different, a bit tricky for a, a few people. Uh, and in Indonesia, we saw why that was going to be a strange one. Argentina, dirty. They don't test there much. Don't know much about it. They, go, they haven't been there for the last couple of years so it's going to be a funny one and texas is an absolutely bonkers track which has had its own problems i'm looking forward to seeing what they've done in terms of the surface and yeah. that's before you get to port out the problem is whereas it used to be in the past you might have two flyaways at the start of the year and you'd be in europe now we've got four you know if you include your port five and that's your quarter of the season gone already yeah so it is important to hit the ground running in these early stages and that's why something like the second place for fabio quattararo in that last round is going to be crucial it's going to be vital and where Peko Benyaya having scored is it one point up to this point of the season so far uh, is going to be an issue you know that I might not in a 21 round season it, it all it should all even out but you don't want to be getting back waiting till you get back to Europe to score these uh, decent points so uh, yeah. yeah it's uh, it's an exciting season look if anyone had come to me at the start of the year and said after round two and Bassinini will be leading you've had two race winners and neither of them are Fabio Quartararo Peko Benyaya or Mark Marquez you would have surprised me even though they're quirky track. Yeah. So it's it's an amazing start. That segues us quite neatly then into talking about Indonesia, which is sort of the, the main reason for being here. So if it's okay with you, Gab, we'll just sort of go Moto3, Moto2, and then MotoGP. Uh, mm. And we're not, so we're not going to do a lap-by-lap analysis or anything boring like that. I just want to pick out a few key highlights and just chat them over. So sure. Moto3 race, um, it was the only race that was held in what we expected to be sort of hot, dry conditions. Foggia hit the front, I think, on lap three, and then nobody really saw him again. So Qatar troubles aside, do you think anybody can hold him back? this year at some point uh, I think I think he might have his own places that he doesn't like he's not a massive fan of the wet weather conditions we saw in Qatar that you know certain things can conspire against you he had that pace in Qatar if, if he'd have been in that yeah. front group I am almost certain well he wouldn't have been in the front group my opinion I know Sasaki pulled away but he'd have been with Sasaki if not beyond Sasaki he had that much more pace than everyone at that opening round and yeah if he keeps it on two wheels and keeps it you know keeps it rolling in these early rounds of the championship then he's going to be hard to stop I fancy the start of the season like uh, Juan Mir or Martin might have had or, or Danny Kent you know where someone builds up a big lead yeah. and then then it's where, whether any pressure tells but 
it showed last year, didn't it, when he was actually playing the catch-up role. That's an easier role to play, is the catching up. And he did a great job because you have nothing to lose. So you can go out there. Yes. I think we saw at Qatar when you're the one to beat, that's where the uh, you know question marks come in. You might make a risky move like he made during during qualifying to uh, come out on track as he did, except for the back of the grid and the rest is history. But I see him as the man to beat by far. I think he's got quarter of a second over the rest that that bike that he fits it, it's like it was designed around him if you look at there's, a, there's been a few side shots of him and the bike yeah. and it is like from the the nose to the tail is in tune with him so much so and they've always got a little bit extra i don't know what they're doing in that team but they've got something that's working at Leopard, a quasi HRC team, mm. and it's just looking ominous in Moto Three. We're still going to get great races, but I just think he's got something else. It's odd, isn't it, how that Leopard seems to be manifestly quicker down the straights than anything else? Although I noticed Mino was looking pretty fast as well on another Honda. So there have been murmurings in the paddock that you know you read anecdotally mm. about. Well, no, but they were they they were there were complaints. There was an official. They stripped the bike, checked it, and found nothing to be the issue. So you know, it has actually been taken to a technical director Danny Aldridge, and he's had to go through every component, everything on the bike, and yeah, kept the uh, deposit that you have to put down. If you if you want to challenge someone that they're breaking the rules, you have to put down a security deposit, which prevents people making silly accusations yes. every okay. week. Yeah, uh, something like I think it's about a thousand euros or something like that, which is you know not a chubby yeah. amount of money. For a Moto3 team, you've got to put that amount of money down and you lose it if you fail the appeal. I'm sure it was the VR46 team. I'm pretty sure it was about two or three years ago. Right. I suppose the only other thing with Dennis uh, Foggia then is really whether he can maintain what appears over the last half a season. You know, a much more consistent level of results because he was certainly very guilty, wasn't he, of being very fast at one race and then disappearing without trace for races on end thereafter. So it, it would appear that he's solved that. Do you know if there's anything reason in terms of in the garage or the people around him that's changed that might have helped to, to do that? Yeah, definitely. It was the middle part of last year. You might remember he came out and said, I can't work with this team, not doing it. That's it. I'm done. I'm, you know, I'm going to leave this team at the end of the year. And then he sat down with Christian Lundberg, team boss, and they said, look, we need to get your dad out of the garage. He's having a bad influence on you. These sorts of things are your dad. Dad was banned from the garage and suddenly he was winning and he had that run. I think it was six podiums, seven podiums in a row, couple of wins in between. But yeah. Wins, seconds, thirds, back to back to back. And as you say, it had always been good results. Bad result, good result, bad result, or you know, a couple of bad results. But they sorted it out in the middle part of uh, last year. And now they've found a way of working. And I think in that team, because they, and they have won the championships in the past with Dallaporta, with Mir, with Kent, they've got a way of working that works. And you just need to trust the team. I think the same about the IO squad. Yeah. You just have to trust what they're going to do. And it might be counterintuitive to the way you like to do things or whatever, but they will get the best out of the bike and the best out of you if you let them be, if you let them do what the, what they want. And I think Fodger realised that, that his best interests were the team's best interests and harmony ensued. And he was back again this year and, and he's the odds on favourite to, to take the title. Yeah. Now, we haven't seen the best of Daniel Holgado yet because he's riding, I think, still with quite a damaged leg, isn't he, from a training yeah. accident. And Diego, I'm going to struggle with the pronunciation on some of these new riders until I get it into my head. But Diego Moreira? Oh, Diego, Diego Moreira, yeah. Moreira is, uh, he looks really good. Yeah. Really good. Daniel Holgado is the junior GP, as it is now. So he's the reigning junior world champ. Like Fodger was in his day, you know, coming through Dallaporta, they all you know, come through as champions. And you put a little asterisk by the name and say keep an eye on him 
he's injured. He actually looked quite good in the mix. Yeah. It's not, I mean, everyone's probably expecting every everyone coming up from the junior world championship to be Pedro Acosta or mm. Isan Guevara. It's not always like that, but I, I liked how he started. Bear in mind, he's still injured, Olgado. But Moreira's the one who was really, really taken to it. I'm liking the look of him a lot. I think yeah. uh, he, he had bad luck at the week, at the weekend in Indonesia. But uh, so, uh, he, and again, he's not had a stellar career. I've, I've watched him. I remember watching him in the rookies a couple of times and seeing him battling at the front with uh, the Alonso's and, and people who were at the front end in rookies. And, and you always thought, oh, there's something in there. And clearly, he's, it, it, it's clicking for him. But, you know, um, it's a long season on that and it can click in a couple of races here, quirky tracks, and who knows where it's going to go. But I like what I've seen from Moreira. I think that's a, yeah. a really solid start from him. And a shout out, I must say, to Scott Ogden as well from a sort of partisan oh, yeah. British point of view. I mean, what a great result he had last weekend. Yeah, he did. He had a really good ride. And I reckon having got to know Scott a bit more, I remember meeting Scott way, way back when he was a young teen, but not might not even been a teen when I first met him because they were doing the selection for British Talent Cup back in the day. But he struck me since he's come back into the paddock. And we saw him a couple of times last year when Michael was discussing setting up Michael Laverty, setting up the Vision Track team. Yeah. Uh, and you meet him and he was, you know, he was confident. I liked it. He came up and he goes, yeah, how are you doing? Usual shyness of a teenager meeting people that you know he's probably seen or heard of before or listened to on the TV and yeah. he was chatting to myself and Neil Hodgson and really oh, really confident about it and looking forward to it and this year do you know what it's the fact that he's willing to get stuck in and he will listen to people and I really like how he started I think got a little diamond in the rough there because half of this if not more than half is between the ears mm. in terms of confidence but also intelligence of being able to listen to people and take things on board and put them into action and he's a smart kid but I really like uh, I really like how he started so again it, he won't be happy with being outside a top 10 or anything like that but it's going to happen yeah. this is the this is the creme de la creme this is the world championship so yeah I wish him well for the year ahead it does make you think that the likes of you know the perennial sort of underachievers if I'm not being too unkind as Jeremy Masia and Tatsuki Suzuki and so on they need to be looking over their shoulders a little bit don't they really because you know with these young guys coming through yeah, Mazia is good. He's a very, very good rider. Again, is it quite clicking? I don't think it is at the moment, but I think he'll be there or thereabout. Uh, but I'm getting the sense that there's a, a bit of frustration on his side that, that it isn't clicking quite as easy as he would have hoped. Uh, Suzuki, I mean, he's always been an up and down kind of race. I remember him since he very first hit the front of a race in Magello and then never finished it. And that's happened so many times over the years. Okay, he's a bit like, and some people come in a lot of times, I'm going to say this, and I'm a big supporter of John McPhee because I think he's yeah. a really talented rider. Well, they all are. Don't get me wrong. They all are. But again, he's had his mistakes. And I get you wouldn't believe every time we put something up or you speak about John McPhee, I get insults. I shouldn't, don't deserve it, don't deserve a ride, all this. And that's wrong. It is wrong mm. because he does enough every year for someone to think, actually, if we can just unlock it, there is some seriously fast riding there. He's a, he's, you know, more, won more than one Grand Prix. That means it's not a flash in the pan. He's had podiums every single year. It's the same for Suzuki. He's there or thereabouts. He's fast. He's got pole positions. Has he converted it? No. He hasn't managed to do that. But there's enough people out there say, he's clearly fast. We just need to find that little key. And that happens with some riders and it takes them a time to do it. It didn't take yeah. happen for, you know, Alex Marquez overnight. It took him a few goes, you know, and then in Moto2, it took a while to go at it. So, yeah, I think with Suzuki, it's just sometimes it's for their own frustration gets the better of them. I think the same with Mazia sometimes. But clearly hugely talented and, uh, yeah. yeah, wish them well. 
So the Moto3 race was pretty spirited, but as we said, Foggia was way out front, so it was really a race for second, but we saw some very good rides from Garcia, Guevara, and Carlos Tatai in particular really impressed. So moving on to the Moto2 race in the moment, but Moto3, it rarely disappoints, does it? I suppose the only worry is going to be, is are we going to have this Foggia running away with, you know, with every race for the next few races at least and building up that kind of points lead? They're going to need to get the hooks into uh, Fodger early on in races if they can to try and hold him back. That's what I'm yeah. going to need to do. Uh, you mentioned Garcia and Guevara, they're title contenders. Yeah. They're the ones who will challenge Fodger this year. Garcia is aggressive of anything. I actually think Guevara's got a little bit of racecraft about him too. So yes, uh, yeah. I like the look of them. But I was so impressed by Tatai and he had a good weekend in Qatar, which ended, he got nerfed off, didn't he, early on. Was it yes. in the battle with Garcia? I think it was. It just shows what Garcia's like. Yeah. Um, but Tatai has looked really good and it's actually surprised me because I was thinking he was starting to get too tall. He really has got a lot taller. I saw him uh, on the opening day in Qatar. So sometimes when they start to get that little bit taller, you you know, you've instantly, you've, you've picked up another kilo or two and you losing down the straight every single go so yeah uh, no i was super impressed by tatay in indonesia yeah and i'm sort of waving a bit of a flag this year for artigas as well because i thought it was a little bit unfortunate that he got booted from the leopard squad so i'm kind of hoping that he has a good season uh, on what looks to be a pretty good team doesn't it that cf moto team well, well, it's the Proustal team that battled for the championship with Marco Bezzecchi. They know how to put a team together. They know yeah. how to run an outfit. And uh, CF Moto is, you know, it's just ultimately a branding exercise. And the same people are involved. I reckon they'll they'll have a good shot, some good results. I, I'm the same with you uh, about Artigas. I thought it was dealt a rough hand. That's how this sport works, unfortunately, yeah, sometimes. Ruthless. Uh, yeah, you don't get the breaks and a lot of people at the top end of this sport if for a sliding door here uh, or there they would have, wouldn't necessarily be in the position they are now so mm. that's that's just the way it is unfortunately yeah okay so Moto2 now the Moto2 race was reduced to 16 laps and uh, as quite often happens frustratingly you get these sort of slightly strange messages coming from race direction uh, I, I think they said due to track conditions or something slightly ambiguous like that I mean do they sort of not do themselves any favours sometimes in the way that they communicate these things yeah I think communication is a concern then again look at Formula One and I know probably people listen to this go oh he's mentioned it but look at the problems they had with over communication in terms of race yes. direction yeah so you've got to find that kind of balance. Yeah, and it's not easy. Don't get me wrong. I know Mike Webb, they do a good job in general. I actually feel they do quite a good job. There's some frustrating decisions at times, but people say, oh, well, when that happened, that was the penalty. Or when this happened, that no two incident is the same. Mm. And I like the fact that they are able to look at things, you know, we're in a, with a fresh eye every single time. Yes, there are some decisions that, that surprise us, but when have you uh, never looked at any sport where there's uh, a referee element in it and you haven't agreed with it? You can just keep at the questions but that's the problem sometimes you're not quite sure of the justification of things and that's not always necessarily communicated to you so in terms of what was going on look the track surface was breaking up that yeah. that much seems clear to me uh, Neil Hodgson did an onboard lap he only got to do one lap of the track normally we get to do three um, with the BMW bike that they have set up for the media to go out there but on his lap we got an onboard shot of the track breaking up at turn two with there were holes in the track wow. now of course, Dorno isn't going to show that. It's not in their interests. It's not in the host's interest. In Indonesia, it makes people look bad. But they, do you know what? We all appreciate that they were up against it time-wise. They did what they could in the short space of time. And, the, you know, it's going to take time. 
I would be the opinion that maybe we were there a little bit early, maybe needed more time to bed in. Racetrack needs three months. I think it usually is. It's about like 60 days or a couple of months yeah. to uh, to bed in and to cure at the best of times. In those temperatures and humidity, that's another thing. Dawn are never going to go out there. I've worked there, I know. I, they're never going to go out there and say, oh, this track's breaking up. Um, they're not going to go and promote that and publish it because it doesn't make anyone look good. So I think what they do is they do what they can and and try and just sidestep around the issue as much as possible. Yeah. And make sure, I think they would have spoken to the riders. Are we safe to go here? Riders say, yeah, but this needs doing. Okay, we'll get it all done. Are we safe to race? Let's race. So that I think for me, that was it. It was a case of uh, let's shorten the races because otherwise this surface won't hold up. My take, that's my opinion. Yeah. Be completely wrong. Yeah. Um. I, I'm. You know. I'm sure there'll be someone who hear that in race direction and go. No. 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 Actually, what happened was this. But maybe we'll find out on um, MotoGP Unlimited next season, season two. We might quite, find that quite out. Quite possibly. Quite yeah. possibly. Yeah. I think it would be fair to say that the Moto2 race at Mandalika wasn't a classic, perhaps apart from the potential significance of the winner anyway. I just have written a few bullet points on what I think were a few kind of takeaways, discussion points from it. So first one that I have here is Jake Dixon and Aaron Connett. Can they eventually win a race, do you think? Yes, I do. I, I, about Jake, I wasn't convinced before that it was going to convert it. I know he's always had the pace. It's whether you know he could get in a position to have the bike and package and team. And I think he's got, I honestly do, the way I've seen him start this year, he just needs things to fall his way and they didn't on Sunday. The rain started spitting and I, I believe him when he says he didn't do anything wrong. It's one of those races where you could get caught out yeah, like that. I also believe on, on Aaron Cadet's side that he is going to win a race. I think he's the real deal. I think yeah. he's very, very good, is Cadet. In terms of Jake, you kind of have that impression, don't you, that if he could just win one, get that kind of the old monkey off the back sort of thing, that that could really open the floodgates with him. Because as you say, he is a proper quick rider, isn't he? He is. I he mean, is. they all are, but... No, they are, though. That I mean, it is the most competitive championship, top to bottom, that there is at this level. Because... You don't get into Moto2 unless you've got something special moving up from Moto3 or you're something like Femin Aldeguer, who stood out on the European level. It's not easy to rise to the top. Jake Dixon was a runner-up in British Superbike. He's very, very fast, but it's not necessarily... He's not always had the right kit. When he started, he was actually with the Aspar team, but they had an old KTM. You should look at his frame, it used to be battered up. You know, and then it's fitting in with the, when you move on to another team and, and all these things. And he's back mm. to a team that he knows on a bike that's in good nick. And look at what he's doing. Already yeah. look where Albert Arenas, Moto3 world champion, is on the same bike at the moment. So yes. I think it'll come. I think Canet definitely has what it takes. We've seen that for years. I think he's hot and cold, but he's been showing, hasn't he, since the end of last year and the start of this, that that consistency is there. So, yeah, I expect, expect them both to be up there. We just want to get rid of that bloody bow tie in Park Ferme as well. Oh, with Aaron, yeah, quite like, <laughs> quite like. I, I was going with. It started off. He's got his, uh, you know, his bow tie. And thinking, oh yeah. And then he's got his little pencil mustache. It's a bit Cary Grant, yes. I think. Yeah, that one. But then he's got the what I was calling. This is for British people only, but uh, Deirdre Barlow glasses, <laughs> like proper old school Coronation Street. And then you put it all together, though, and it was, I came up last time, it was like Frank Butcher, wasn't it? When he had the old bow tie, spinning bow tie. He's got Mike Reed glasses on. Yeah, that's what it is. From now on, I'm only going to know him as Frank. And he's got the voice, isn't he? Oh, that was Full on Frank Butcher. <laughs> I don't want to dwell on Moto2 too much because we've got to get yeah. to MotoGP. But mm. uh, a couple of other things. Uh, I think possibly Ayagura has had a bit of a wake-up call and maybe HRC have as well with Chantra winning that race in the way that he did. I suppose it's going to be, is that just a bit of a, a one-off kind of performance on the day or can he start to really repeat that? 
I've thought for a long time that Chantra has got something. He's, you know, it's here, it's been hit and miss. Mm. Again, you talk about it's all the way through the field. He's had top tens here. I think his best result was it a, a fifth or something, a sixth or a fifth beforehand. Yes, it was. Yeah. So, but but he's run close. I don't think HRC would have had a wake up call or anything like that. I think it was unique, tricky conditions, and he came out on top of the day. And as I say, you look at someone at the back of the field, and they could have their day too. And that's the beauty of Moto Two. You've got to enjoy it for that. And it's great isn't it we've got a new winner and how many people at the start of the year would have talked about Chantra yeah. as a, a Moto2 winner and the Thai rider which is fantastic for that part of the world for Southeast Asia as a whole yeah. seem to do it in Indonesia it just gives that whole project of Honda Asia uh, the Asia Talent Cup and all these kids who are doing battle with the young Malaysian rider winning races uh, there at the weekend you know it's just it's just a boost for everyone involved in, in all those projects uh, but I still think Ayagura's got something yeah. I really do. I mean, again, Moto2, like Moto, well, like all of these classes, are just an embarrassment of riches, aren't they, really? And whilst mm. the Moto2 races are not necessarily the standout races, I think it would be fair to say in most weekends. I mean, if you look, you've got Acosta, I think it's going to have a solid year, but I suspect might end up in Moto2 for a couple of years. I hope, In fact, I sort of hope that he does. Yeah, me too. Augusto Fernandez. I mean, if that guy can't start the first third of a race properly, he's going to really sort of hamper his chances of the championship, isn't he? And just having watched the first two races, I'm kind of getting this feeling a little bit and I'm interested Gavin your take on this is that isn't a slightly injured Sam Lowe's a better rider than a fully fit one <laughs> it's certainly taken an edge off it sort of made him think oh, I don't I, I can't win this one you know I've got many things I'll just settle for this hey that's great we'll, we'll take it I think it's a really solid start for his season yeah. I have to say better than I thought better than I reckon he thought I'm close to Sam spoke to Sam a fair bit and you know I think he was however much he might have been saying outwardly be alright be alright you, you, you know you had that feeling as it was I'm telling myself this uh, because I'm not quite sure but um, mm. so you know pleased for him the way it started and as you say the injury has just taken the edge off him uh, a little bit in terms of sometimes maybe he would have you know gone for the fact that Jake was in front of him and uh, let's get stuck in here or oh yeah I can take chance oh, just just take what you can yeah so yeah impressed by him Vietti I'm being very very positively impressed we always said from when he started in Moto3 he's going to be a star definitely we, we all said that because yeah. you can just see it you can see there's something there some racecraft some you know a little bit like Isan Guevara was doing last year you see these odd flashes here and there and he moved up to Moto2 very quickly I'm not surprised to see him winning races but yeah fantastic the, the ways he started yeah. to this year who was the other person you mentioned you mentioned someone else well Augusto Fernandes who's oh, kind yeah, of Augusto, been touted yeah. as a as a championship favourite but I still think this time I still think it will come good Right, it, it often happens with that team again like we were talking with Leopard before when you get round to the fact that you've got to trust you, this team that he's new into let's not forget uh, actually had a really good start in Qatar you're right the early parts of the race is just get those sorted but I think he'll be there. I'm not concerned. And yeah, again, Augusto's someone that you have to rate because of, uh, of his history. Certainly in terms of managing his season and his kind of mental approach to the season, he's in the best possible team for that, isn't he? In terms of Akiyo's mm. sort of undoubted talent at getting the best out of, out of everybody. Yeah, I mean, he is the one that you would model yourself on if you were setting up a, a Moto3 and Moto2 team because of the success they've had. And he's grown it from a one-man band back in 2001, coming up for wildcards with Mika Calio. 
you know, he's grown it into the reference point team in both those classes. And yeah. KTM are heavily involved in there. They are a factory KTM team, effectively. And he will not get flustered. He will not get concerned, whether that be for Acosta or Fernandez. Mm. He will be so phlegmatic about it. And yeah, we can do this. And he'll point them in the right directions. And they trust Aki and they'll they'll get to the right places. So again, neat segue this, talking about riders that could do with mind management help. Let's jump into MotoGP. And obviously, we cannot talk about MotoGP without first having a discussion about Mark Marquez. So uh, I'm sure everybody's seen this because all of our listeners, you know, are rabid, avid sort of uh, watchers of the content like we all are. But it was clear right from the get go that Honda had grip issues with the change of tyre construction that uh, Michelin had to bring. We saw with Mark in Q1, basically two identical crashes within a space of about six or seven minutes I think it was wasn't it and then jumping forward to morning warm-up it wasn't the morning probably but Mark had what you could only describe as the mother and father of all high sides didn't he I mean a crash that you don't see thankfully very often in terms of the sheer violence and severity of it the result of that being a clear concussion I mean he was staggering around in the gravel trap for the first minute or so a race withdrawal and then ultimately unfortunately for him a, a return of the dilopia that's afflicted him of late so is there a point at which he or somebody close to him needs to flag up the, the word that begins with an R just before he does himself some really serious and long-lasting damage? Or do you not think we're quite there yet? No, I don't think we're anywhere. I don't think we're there yet at all. I've seen that a lot. I've seen a lot of people comment to me, he will be back, I'm sure. All that weekend, all it's shown me is he will not be beaten. He will not be beaten. And you may be right that, you know, we've always known injuries will take their toll. But I don't think he's done. I think what he's proved is that he's willing to give it a go. Now, uh, my worry is about the double vision issues is they say it's not as serious uh, an episode. But I remember when he first had it done back in the day, he had to have the operation 2011. Yeah. uh, And they said another big impact and it, you know, it could be bad. That's obviously happened last year where he's had the the Plopi episode again. Uh, But there was an interview done at that time saying, yeah, if he has it again, then it's not good. So that's something. But but the way he's spoken, I think Mark's been very honest over the last couple of years. Yes, he hasn't gone into the full detail of his arm and whatever. That's his prerogative. That's his own medical diagnosis and that kind of thing. But I think he's been generally quite honest and open about where he is and when he said oh my arm's not right we've gone well is it and it's been a bit like no he is telling the truth and you know I'm lacking strength well is it yeah well he has and I'm getting there and he did and and so I think Mark's as good a judge as anyone outside I think Mark's a better judge should I say than anybody outside of where he's at and what he's capable of and actually the way he's spoken I'll talk about his honesty is I will not rush things anymore in terms of injuries I will listen to my doctors I will do things the proper way and I believe him he's in the past he might have played a few games for the media even then I don't think that much to be honest Uh, I know a few people have a black mark next to his name and that's fine that's your prerogative on it but I'm telling you this as someone who's known him all these years and know what he's like and he's generally quite upfront about things and if if he isn't upfront he doesn't outright lie he just generally doesn't say anything he won't mention it you know what new bits have you got on your Honda? Yeah, I can't really say. Or, you know, that kind of thing. So when he says, I will follow the medical advice, I do believe him. I really do believe him. And if they're telling him to rest up, then fine. And the only person who's going to be able to decide whether it's right for him to retire or right for him to step back is himself. I don't think anyone can do that. I've seen people say Honda should withdraw him or, uh, it's, you know, Alberto Puch, it's his fault for pushing him. No, it's all Mark. He, mm. He's just a very determined character himself and he'll be able to say if it is 
bad and it's not going to be the same again. He would stop. I do believe that now. I do. But I don't think the way you just hear them say it's not as bad as last time. I believe uh, that you know he's the best judge. Personally, I believe he is the best judge of his situation, his medical prognosis, and yeah. when, when um, it's going to be right for him to come back. So... I mean, that's why it's fascinating to, to have you on, Gab, because obviously, as you say, you know him, you can talk to him in his own language, so mm. you, you can sort of really understand where he's at. I suppose, from my point of view, the thought that came to me in terms of Mandelika specifically was just having had those two sort of fairly big crashes in qualifying on the Saturday, and in the context that Honda... All of the Hondas were in terrible grip trouble and, and he'd had lots of other near crashes throughout the weekend as well, particularly with the rear kind of coming around on him off throttle pretty much. And that was kind of the crash that he had in the warm up. And you just wondered whether or not it was time to back it down a little bit because that crash was kind of coming. And But that's just not his nature, I suppose, is it? He just, and that's he it. And, and I've seen, I've seen, I, I said, I put something out and, and someone criticised me saying different breed. And I honestly do believe that it, you can't look at it from your standpoint. You can't look at it. It from you you have to look at it from the standpoint of an eight-time world champion and i can't put myself in his shoes but you have to put yourself in you know who can think like mark marcus thinks and he will not be beaten he's got such drive and determination and yes and i'm sure people will say sometimes riders don't know what's best for them and i agree but i don't think you get to an eight type being an eight-time world champion and not know what's best for yourself and as i've said to you before knowing when too much is too much you know he's had that wake-up call with coming back too soon after the first arm injury yeah. and he's realized that and i do think he's changed in that respect but his drive and determination he will not be beaten out on track and that's why he had those crashes because right i'm going to try and squeeze it to fit i am willing to crash this bike and do this i'm willing to take the risk with my vision i'm willing to do that and i will you know decide what's right and yeah i think someone said to me online saying you know saying they're a different breed is akin to letting them get away with it and putting themselves in danger but that's why they think completely differently to you or i because Mm. their priorities are different you know that's why he's an eight-time champion exactly that's how they get to where they are because they are willing to do things that you or i wouldn't do that's my belief and if people think that's normalizing their behavior then so be it but it's a it's a sport a gladiatorial sport if if we all thought rationally that kind of thing people wouldn't be doing the tt yeah if, if we all thought in the same kind of way that kind of thing wouldn't still happen it's a question about whether it should happen or not that's you know by the by mm. but people still do do it and who are you or i to say about making that decision for someone uh, and I think the same thing about Mark. And that's my personal opinion. That's my take on it. Yeah. And, you, you know, some people I'm sure will disagree with that. I believe that he's the master of his own destiny in this. And if he does take it too far and he hurts himself and it's something that causes him long-term damage, it will be done, I believe. It's, he's not being coerced into it by Honda, by Alberto Butch, by sponsors, by anything. It will be done because Mark Marquez wants to do it himself. And 25 million a year, whatever it is that, that he's getting, or sponsors and all that kind of thing, he was willing to give it back. You know, he's yeah. willing to give it back. He wants to be out there racing and winning. And that's the, the drug that he craves. Really fascinating, Gav, to get your insight on that. Because as you say, it's such a contentious issue. And of course, it's very mm. easy, easy for everybody to have an opinion when they're not actually the ones out there doing it and putting stuff on the line. But as you say, I mean, it's... That drive that determination that never give up attitude is what's got him all the championships that he's got so you don't just switch that off no you, you can't it's not like a tap and you suddenly go oh, i've not got that anymore it, it might be if something really bad happens you think do you know what that's it quit and i've heard people say that in the past but there's just a different outlook a different way of looking at things i think for mark 
And yeah. my belief currently is that he will be back. And that's all I can say. But he will listen to what the doctors say and the medical yeah. advice is. I'm sure of it. So unfortunately, we were robbed of having Mark in the race. I suppose in some respects, the fact that we had a biblical kind of level downpour and thunderstorm allowed the race to happen because <laughs> I wonder whether it would have actually gone ahead had it been dry because of the track issues that we were talking about early on. We'll never know, but the rain intervened and luckily they just about managed to get it uh, sort of once the shaman had done her work and cleared the clouds. <laughs> well, yeah, well, this is the thing about the shaman. Uh, again, it's another one where I've seen people comment about what they think happened with the shaman. The shaman was brought in originally to make sure there was no rain. Yeah. <laughs> so then I've heard people say, oh, she did her job. She got rid of the rain. Wait a second. <laughs> no, it wasn't supposed to come in the first place. Or maybe it was. Maybe they brought it in to save the event because of the heat. But, you know, obviously it's a, a cultural, local cultural thing. And I've heard people say, oh, you know, the shaman, you know, don't take the mic out of her because she, she did her job. No, her job was to make sure there was no rain in the first place. You can't then come along and go, yeah, I'll get rid of this then. You know, we didn't want this. Sorry. It's the role that keeps on giving, isn't it? <laughs> it is when anyone who's lived in that part of the world or been in that part of the world knows that any tropical storm generally lasts about an hour or <laughs> an hour and a half. Yep. You know, the Mac, it happens every night in the, when you're in Sepang. Usually around testing time, it used to happen, or you go there for the race at the end of the year, and it can happen in the afternoon, four o'clock, and that's it. You'll get an hour, absolute deluge, and then it's all right. Yeah. And that's pretty much what happened. But anyway, I loved it. I have to say yeah, it was. It helped to relieve the boredom, didn't it? Whilst we were waiting Absolutely. for things to clear, as well as the guy dancing in the in the stands, which uh, clearly tickled uh, <laughs> Fabio Quattararo. He's he's gone yeah. viral, and um, so the race was reduced to twenty laps. When it eventually got underway, we saw what could only be described as another rocket KTM start, a little bit Brad Binderish from Qatar, but this time Miguel Oliveira. And mm. I mean, we did see in terms of the grip in the wet that this track was giving, we did see this last year in the Superbike finale there. But I mean, seeing riders getting their elbows down in the wet is pretty unusual isn't it i mean yeah, it's just because it's a brand new track maybe you know it's just so grippy at the moment that it doesn't matter if it's wet or dry but yeah extra grippy it's also not cold is it as well that's another yeah. factor in it it's not like you're going out in you know when it was torrential that time at silverstone it was freezing as i'm sure people listening to this would have been in the stands and will be able to testify i was stood in pit lane soaked to the bone and freezing yeah whereas over there it's, all right, it's quite pleasant it's quite nice to have that you know quite a relief i should think yeah, yeah but the michelin tires are unbelievably good as well the fact that in world superbike as you say they were inside we always call it the 110 percent lap that's what you you know that's where usually you're talking about 10 percent more than a normal dry lap time is where you aim at slippier tracks it goes beyond that and then grippier tracks goes down and it was something like about 107 108 percent i think of a normal lap time which just shows how yeah. amazingly grippy it was so uh yeah just incredible to see isn't it the way that they can ride yeah. in, in those conditions Shock, shocking almost is the word that I would yeah, use. It just doesn't seem right. It doesn't compute, does it? No. But it can then catch you out like it did with Martin. Yes. Yeah. Do you think Oliveira's just secured himself a, a new contract at KTM or has he still got some work to do there? I reckon, I, I don't know. It's very early to say on that front. I'd want to sign him up. Whether KTM will is, uh, or not is another matter. They've got a, an embarrassment of riches. Depends on how much they rate Pedro Costa if they want to keep hold of him or Remy Gardner or Raul Fernandez. Because I know this, not with Remy, but Raul definitely he wanted out of his contract. So do you then do a bit of jiggery pokey around there? I'd want to keep Miguel. I think he's a fantastic rider. I think the stats say since he won his first Grand Prix, only Fabio Quartararo has won more since really? he won his first race a couple of years ago in COVID. Right. So that tells me that you've got someone there who's won each of the last three years 
right? And he's a really good motorcycle racer. I've always rated him for the start. Never really, I don't think, had the opportunity at the start of his career that set him on a different path. Went Had to go to Mahindra in the end because he didn't have a ride. And Mahindra took him a couple of years and then ended up back, you know, in a position where with Aki, he was able to battle and sort of so forth, then on into Moto2. And it all worked out for him from there. But he's, he was a bit behind the, you know, the where everyone else was in their careers. He came through Maverick Vinales ultimately and... Yeah, he's one of the veterans now. So, yeah, I rate him highly. The question for me is whether another factory will want him because I personally don't think there'll be much changing around this year in terms of big name moves here or there across the factories. There might be the odd one here or there, but, you know, you've got all the factories have someone in place pretty much apart mm. from uh, at Suzuki and they're desperate to hang on to Mir. Uh, it's just, again, if, if, if there's a big move like that, then I could see other factories wanting Miguel because he's proven time and again that he can win races and in difficult conditions. Barcelona last year, yeah. uh, when he won that race, that was another tyre degradation management performance. Uh, in fact, I fancy him for the race in Indonesia in the dry. I've been talking about it before. But I really fancied his chances because he's good in those kinds of situations. Yes, it wasn't going to be as long a race, but yeah, he's, he's good in those situations. So what's held him back has been qualifying, but you could say that about Suzuki in the past couple of years too. So yeah, if, yeah. if they could start qualifying up there, I think Binder would have been there had he not had the issue with rear ride height device sticking on. So yeah, I'd stick with those two personally if I'm KTM. But your question was, has that sealed him a contract? I think it would give a contract if he wanted it right I'm a big fan of Miguel Oliveira a big fan and I really do hope that he does get retained in that squad because I think he's great picking up on something you said earlier on mentioning the dreaded F1 but Jim and I were having a discussion about this a few shows ago and I have kind of always likened Oliveira to Alain Prost he's kind of that thinking rider you know very sort of uh, structured in the way that he goes about things very measured obviously a very intelligent guy I mean they all are very intelligent but Miguel seems to be super intelligent and and I really think that he's going to have a good season this year, having had a pretty dire one last year. Yeah, it was dire, but that was down to injury. Yes. My take. This is my take again. He yep. had those three races where it was second, first, second, and you're thinking, oh, here we are. He's, he's back on. But then clearly the injury was doing him more harm. The weird thing was that he said it wasn't affecting him. And then he, at the end of the season, he's only had effectively. Which is a that's a strange thing. I can't get my head around. But I think with Francesco Guidotti going in there as team manager, there's a different focus now at KTM. My understanding basically is since they came in with Polis Bagra, Bradley Smith, and Mika Calio all at the start, they were testing stuff. We Week in, week out, always something new. All these different frames, all these different aero packages and engine configurations, not configuration, but engine specs, so on and so forth. Yeah. All the time, testing. Where, where, as a rider, where can you, where do you start from every single weekend? Look at Peko Banyaya. He was complaining about the fact that he was trying, having set up a bike up to FP3 at the opening round in Qatar. You can't do that. And they were doing it all the way through the year. And I think what Guidotti will do there, you've had your time with Mike Leitner. We've got a bike that can battle. You've won races, both riders in the factory team and out the factory team where and uh, Miguel was there, have won races. Mm -hmm. So you've got a package. Hey, let's just have a base setup. Let's have a bike here now that we work from there. And I think that's what they've got. And now they've got this package that the riders can then fine-tune to their own feeling, get it all sorted. We've seen them much better in qualifying. Uh, they look good in the races. And KTM could well, you know, spring a few surprises as the year goes on. I won't be surprised. When you're talking about everyone else having their issues here and there, whether it be Yamaha, places with long straights, well, don't worry, the KTM's going to be able to manage that. Uh, Tracks with flow on it. Well, I'll tell you what, Brad Binder looked pretty good at that opening round, didn't he? In, in he did. Qatar. 
Yeah. And you start to get to the point where Suzuki's an all-round bike, but as a, as a KTM, is that starting to look like a package that might be a bit mm. all-round? So yeah, I'm, I'm excited about their future. As you just mentioned, went a little bit under the radar, I think, but Brad Binder had his rear ride height device basically locked in the down position for mm. most, if not all, of that race. Were you, maybe not surprised, but were you a little bit disappointed that with the front ride height devices having been banned by uh, an announcement that came out a couple of days ago that they didn't do the same with the rears? No, I've, I've got no problem with either of them, to be honest. They couldn't do the same with the, the rear because they've all employed them and they all realise it means it gets us a lot of extra pace down the straight. Yeah. So you weren't <laughs> going to get people, especially someone like Suzuki, who worked it out a little bit and that's a lot of their extra pace down the straight has come from that. So you weren't going to get that. I'm a bit disappointed they did the front. Again, I understand why it's costs and that kind of thing. But for me, it, I'm on Ducati's side on this one. I have to say that the whole thing in this sport and always has been in motorsport, is you've got your regulations what's not in the regulations and that's what they've done they've gone and found something and worked a way around that you know has worked around the regulations to find something that may give them an edge it didn't give them an edge as well mm. in the opening round or you know opening couple of rounds I'm assuming they'll just get it off the bike because what's the point in, in, in doing it now but I, I sort of feel a little bit like they've tried to put the genie back in the bottle and he's just got his head out and it's already out on your aero packages and your wings and all the other bits and bobs but that's that's because all the teams knew they had to catch up and I'm sure it'd have been the same here and I feel for Ducati in that respect is they haven't done anything against the rules here and people do talk about the safety element but every aspect of this sport is unsafe in some respect yeah uh then there's a talk about it not feeding down to production motorcycles well where's your seamless gearbox where are your carbon brakes going to come from and these kinds of things mm. you're, not, you know, you're not riding slick tires out on the road there's a there's a you could go on a whole host of things that you've got on those bikes that you're not going to filter down but it's not until you have development progress and development pushes that you find something. I understand they've done it for cost reasons, effectively. They say yeah. it's safety, it's cost. Yeah. The other factories don't want to spend the money. And that's fine because COVID's been, and we've all been hit hard by it, but come out and say that, Bobbins, about it being, you know, um, safety, that kind of thing. We had a, an interesting little round table discussion on Zoom a few months ago now with uh, some of our subscribers. And uh, I think it was Alan Fleming, uh, one of our long-term subscribers, talk, made the point that this is a prototype championship. The idea is to go faster. So there are too many rules stopping them from doing it already. So if they think it's something that makes them go faster, that's the whole point. <laughs> so don't just ban it straight away. So, I mean, it's, it's an yeah. interesting point of view, isn't it? Yeah, I have to say on this one, I do think, I think the wings was a was one, if they'd have done that back in the day, they tried, but then they realised they all had to get on board. So they've got around it by, it's supposed to be unanimous, it has to be unanimous in the MSMA. Um, and often it's a bit of horse trading in there. Look, okay, we don't think you should be doing this, but we, we, we won't do that. Remember with the scoop under the bike, that sort mm -hmm. of thing. Yeah. Um, and these things get taken away in the end for safety. But yeah, um, I believe it's part of the sport is development and research and, you know, Who'd have thought that aero would become such a big part of most GP? We knew there was more to be gained here and there, but we always thought our oh, cars have downforce and the wings do certain things. But now we're finding that bikes can have them, <laughs> and then they and certain things happen there. So. Yeah. There are things to be learned. There's things to be learned from an engineering point of view. Yeah. I'm conscious of time because I've already had yeah, for yeah. much longer than I said we were going to do. So Don't worry about it. Was there Don't one worry. other, just sort of wrapping up our talk about the MotoGP at Mandalika, I can think of one thing that comes to my mind, but was there any other sort of particular standout in terms of the race for you or one of the riders perhaps? I thought Quattararo was excellent. thought in tricky circumstances, he rose to the occasion. You know, it could have been, you know, it could have been there starting the year with that disappointing race in Qatar and throwing it down the road. 
in yeah. Mandalika, but he built into the race and he sort of built into himself as a world champion. I really, I thought it was an excellent ride from Fabio Quattrari. I thought he had a great start to the year. Disappointed with performance of Ducati in terms of Banyaya, you know, the way he, his season has started. We know what happened at Qatar, it can happen any race, but it just puts him on the back foot, doesn't it? Yeah. Puts him on the back foot. Uh, and it looked to me like the Ducati wasn't the bike that it always has been in the past. You'd think in wet with grit, it would, would suit them, but uh, Jack Miller could only get fourth, and I sort of have him as a good benchmark of yeah. what a bike's capable of in those conditions, so go beyond that. And Zarco, who's pretty handy in the wet normally as well, but he was sort of toiling and labouring rather, wasn't he, and couldn't really make a lot of progress, so it seemed. Yeah, I think part of that was Miller in front of him. That's my understanding is that, you know, you've got a similar package to the person that you're battling with, not like you can make that much of a difference. And that allowed Fabio Guattararo to come in and he could use that Yamaha in, in different areas of the track. And he also won't have wanted to knock off his factory colleague, will he? No. When when, no. when we're talking about contracts and that kind of thing, you know, and there's people mentioning Bastianini and Martin, you start knocking your factory chap off his bike and the guy aren't saying, oh, we definitely need to keep that fella because uh oh no wait a second you know ask, ask andrea you know no yeah exactly exactly um i was i'm just going to wave a little flag although i like lots of people i've been quite critical of him in the past but great race from darren binder i mean fair oh, play to yeah. the guy well, brilliant I, absolutely brilliant I, i've been critical of him in most three because he's done some stupid things would be yeah. termed bonehead maneuvers <laughs> has happened in the past yeah he's done some amazing races too he can outbreak the best of them that much has been clear through his time in emotion he does things and gets it stopped on the break sometimes he uses people as a bird sometimes yeah. he does get that slightly wrong but in that race he was absolutely fantastic and he was great in the first round didn't win any friends but the, he's not there to make friends is he uh, in MotoGP. Uh, Remy Gardner wasn't too happy with some of the moves in the opening round, uh, but I was pleased for him. I, I don't The criticism that any of us have had in the past of Darren have not been about him as a person because we really like him or actually questioning his speed because he's quick. It's just been about doing the right moves at the right time in the right place. And that's that will come. And that was always the worry that you, in Moto3, you haven't gone through then Moto2, where it's that much harder to make a pass on somebody, mm. uh, to make a move, that you, you learn actually when's a good point, when's a good time to do this kind of thing. But you cannot knock him for what he did. I thought it was uh, an absolutely excellent ride. That really would suit him, someone who you know likes to, likes it loose, not afraid to take a risk. I know I'm I'm with you. I thought he was excellent. I don't think anyone will be uh, criticising him. I did love the fact that he put a move in on Brad Binder and then his brother served him it back right at the end. <laughs> yes. I just love, I could just imagine them as kids out in the <laughs> fields or wherever they went out the back of their house in South Africa and then doing that kind of move on each other. But uh, yeah, I thought it was really good to see. But they had a laugh in the paddock after that race. <laughs> they will have done. They will yep. have done. They're both lovely lads. They, they really are. Uh, not always necessarily the character that, people think they are Darren's quite you know quite calm he's quite a you know, calm character he's not like that on track but he's quite no. a chilled out guy is uh is Darren so uh yeah I was I, I was pleased for him now before I get the dreaded 10 minute zoom uh, warning again <laughs> <laughs> uh, looking forward to Argentina so you're going to be on a plane presumably on Tuesday or Wednesday this week Gav as you start the monster trek out to, to yeah. that track yeah I leave here I leave home at about 12 o'clock and uh I think it's about a 30 some hour journey by the time I get there, yeah, I've got, I think it's thirty-one hours, thirty-two hours by the time. But again, that's all part and parcel of the uh, the job. Yeah. But I like it. A lot of people don't aren't massive fans of the venue. The track itself is great, but it's quite. Uh, 
remote location. I quite like it. It's got a bit of charm about it. A bit, bit wild, of, I should uh, imagine, is it? It is a bit wild. Don't go... Well, myself and Neil Hodgson once went for a run at the back of the hotel there, and we ended it after about a mile or so because we were attacked by a pack of wild dogs. <laughs> Not attacked. But they started chasing us, and we were like, oh, he absolutely bricked it. And so I called it that day because uh, it is pretty rural and pretty wild out there. So, mm-hmm. But I, it, yeah, I like that. That's the beauty of a world championship, going to places like Lombok one week and then going up to Termas, and then you're suddenly in the US at Austin a week later, uh, which is, again, another favourite of mine on the calendar. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to to getting out there and getting back to Argentina. I'm quite interested to see how things are at the racetrack. Obviously, they had that horrific fire uh, a couple of years ago. So mm. uh, was it just over uh, 18 months ago? Is it something like that? So Yeah, it must be, yeah. I think it was about 18 months. So, yeah, uh, hopefully that it's all in, in good condition. I can't imagine the track's had much running, so it's going to be dirty. Yeah. It's going to take a bit of uh, rubbering in again. I was going to kind of ask if you had any predictions for, for race winners, but it's almost pointless asking that question, really, because, I mean, it's almost impossible, really, isn't it, to really predict in any class. It's a tough call um, who's going to do it. I'd, yeah, I think in MotoGP, I wouldn't be surprised to see Quattararo near the front. There is a hugely long straight, though, and if that discrepancy we saw in Qatar is still there, yeah. you have got a quicker run onto the long back straight there in Argentina, so that should be something. Um, that should help Quattararo in a way, because you're not going from a standing start as you know as much as you might be. Qatar, it's sort of a second gear pretty much onto the front straight. There, it's you roll through and accelerate through the corner onto the straight. We have seen Yamaha for successes there in the past and pondering their own time too I wouldn't be surprised to see Paulo Spargo again mm. too far away from it depending on the tyre situation which he obviously was very frustrated about last time <laughs> yes but uh, yeah I could, uh, it's a tough one to call I would look, look at who the two winners are uh, I wouldn't like to, to call for it but I, between Quattro and Spargo I think won't be too far away I'm also kind of intrigued to see how Maverick Vinales gets on because I read a couple of things that said that in the warm-up session which was obviously dry in Mandalika. He had a change of setting and found something. Uh, and I think he was second quickest in the warm-up yeah, at Mandalika. And obviously the, with the race being wet, didn't get to run that setting. So it will be interesting to see whether he can start to click with that Aprilia because he's had a fair few races on it now, hasn't he? And he kind of needs to start showing, showing something. Yeah, he said he's still getting used to it. Um, that's fine. He had a good test, didn't he? Uh, was it in Sepang? Uh, yes. Right at yes. the start of, of testing there. So, you know, you wonder what the click is. Uh, has he really made a step or is it, you know, not it's going to fall by the wayside? Anyone who's watched that MotoGP Unlimited might have got a bit of an insight more into Maverick. And I think those of us who have worked closely with him and been in the paddocks have seen that side of Maverick always. It's always been there. But I think it, mm. however much he says what he says, I think it comes across in that MotoGP unlimited he's someone who I, for me just doesn't feel sure of himself I don't know whether he's absolute certain about uh, I, I think he certainly wants to race and he wants to win but about how to get there mm. I still feel like he needs I do feel and he says in that documentary uh, people tell me I need to see this and that well I, I don't I, I believe someone needs to unlock something inside him. I believe that he's the block in success sometimes because he can win. He's got all the tools in his tool bag, but there's, there's times when he's getting out of spanner and you need a screwdriver, you know? And so I just, I do feel that he's got it there, but there's just got to be some way of unlocking it better. Yeah. So I do hope that he finds uh, a way forward with the Aprilia, but I'm, I remain to be convinced because too many false dawns 
over the years and one's bitter and it's 15 times shy as far as I'm concerned so yeah. I hope they have found something I hope again it's a lot of these things sometimes people will come back to you and say oh you but you said this none of us want any of these riders to, to fail but you tell it like you see it and if you've seen things happen in the past and disappointment as uh, you know off the back of it then that's the story you've got to tell you know well, yeah, you can only go on tell its own tale. Exactly, and I mean, with Maverick, I mean, it's, it's a fair few years ago now. But let's not forget, he had a meltdown in the team in well, it was one two five at the time. Uh, would that have been the Avintia team? I'm trying to think. The Bluesons. It was I... the Bluesons team as it was at the time. Yeah, and that was again. He was a young kid, but in that instance, it was his dad with him, and you know, his dad is actually I've met his dad. He comes across as a, a decent chap, wants the best for his son, but sometimes that's not necessarily the the right input that you need. Look, uh, every racer has a different journey to get to the top and he's been at the top of the sport yeah uh battle never actually gone the full distance and won the championship but he's he's been in a position to um so everyone has their different ways of uh, approaching things and i'm certainly not someone to tell someone what's the wrong and right way but clearly what it is hasn't got been able to take him to go the full distance to to cross that threshold and something needs to change in yeah. some way I don't know what it is but because I feel it's within him you feel it has to be with him but yeah you know we'll, we'll, we will see the other thing I'm looking at more particularly at Argentina this the last thing I'll say about Argentina is Suzuki because they have flattered to deceive so far I think it was um I don't know if you heard this Simon Crayfar was suggesting that with this monster engine that they've brought out for this season that they might just be struggling a bit in races with fuel consumption and that, that might have been part of the trouble in Qatar certainly mm. and again long straight in Argentina it's going to be quite a thirsty track I'm, I'm sure so it'll be interesting to see how they get on yeah I think both fuel consumption and tyre consumption it was always a strong part of that Suzuki it would get it could be strong in latter stages of races I'm not sure whether it's necessarily they've done something to the engine I know but my understanding from Sylvain Gintoli, who's their test rider, and we've had chats with him on air, but off air too, actually a lot of it has come from the ride height device with dialing it in. So honestly, you wouldn't believe because, uh, and what it's done is the way they've able to apply it to the ground and finding the right moment to be able to do that. Actually, it does mean so much, not just in the first part of the straight, but all the way down as far as we're concerned. So that is also then going to put its own stresses onto the tyre, but... I I, th- I was disappointed at the opening round in Qatar, but I think that's because we got to a point where one, as you say, fuel and tyre was the issue. But I think they can get round that. I, honestly, I'm still positive. After day one in Qatar, we'd have all said there'd have been one and two in the race. Yeah. And it just didn't quite pan out. Mandalika, the tyre wasn't the one that, that again, they, they're someone who have, have found their strengths in getting a bike that works around the tyre. That's what it was over last year when Mitchell brought out the one that had that extra edge grip, which worked for you know the bike with the, in theory, higher corner speed. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a bike that's been, they've modelled it around what the tyre is doing. So I still, I think they'll be definitely ones to watch in Argentina. Um, yeah, I do believe that. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on and uh, for persisting with me because we've had a couple of Zoom issues uh, throughout this. Uh, <laughs> this right. So I'll do my best to edit that to make it uh, seem reasonably seamless. I always finish off just with a light-hearted question and you're a perfect person to ask this given how long you've been involved in your love of the history of the sport. So it's a bit of a weird question, but I've been asking a few people, so I'm interested to hear what your answer is on this one. So the question is, any rider any bike, any track, if you could see something from history, and it could be a combination of a modern bike on an old track or whatever, is there something that in your dreams you would like to see? It could just be somebody riding on their own. It could be a race. It's oh, an all-encompassing question, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's a tricky <laughs> one. all over. <laughs> uh, 
How many people have said Casey Stoner through turn three in Phillip Island? <laughs> said that. Uh, well, we've had Casey Stoner on the 2007 Desmo at Cadwell Park, which was uh, a, 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 <laughs> right, somewhat, okay. a somewhat scary thought. We've had, I'm trying to think who it was. I think it was Greg from Eurosport who was on a few weeks ago. I think he came up with Mark Marquez on his, what would it have been, his 14 Honda RCV around the old Hockenheim. Wow. Yeah, imagine, I mean, anything super fast. I mean... Right, could be. You could go. Let's have a think about it. You've thrown me a bit of a curveball there. Yeah, I see, know. for me, <laughs> the all action riders, though, that have been fun to watch over the years have been your stoners and your Mark Marquez. I do, I think that what they've done, and even Valentino in his day, where it was in his pomp right at the start with sw- the Honda years and then the switch to Yamaha when everything just seemed so, so easy for him. Yeah. I mean, it was just great to watch. They were great to watch by themselves. You know, that's when you know. But so, some of those around, I, I mean, watching Stoner through that, I'd love to have seen Stoner and Marquez have a go at each other yeah. on a track like, you know, where you can have a go at each other, whether it be something like Phillip Island. Imagine that. Imagine the pair of them around there. That would yeah. be uh, pretty special. Has it got to be just one of them? Or can we pit them in this kind of uh, head-to-head? You can uh, do whatever you want. That's the, sort of the nature of the question. <laughs> I'd love to have. I'd love to have seen that the pair of them in their pomp. On, uh, I mean, sticking both in the Honda, they both seem to work well on that, and yeah. uh, let them have a go at each other. What a shame that they missed out. I'll, I'll certainly take. Fair. I'll certainly take Stoner and Marquez on the RCV in a head-to-head around Phillip Island as a very merit-worthy answer to that question. I still think Stoner would win in that instance. You see, on that because Stoner and that track had there. That's why I'm thinking. Do we then go to you know what would it have been like around Mark's Saxon Ring or Austin or something like that? And because obviously Casey won't have ridden around there. Put them both around Laguna Seca you know because yeah. they both had success there let's do that let's get them both around Laguna Seca Laguna Seca has no wall issues it's got no <laughs> problems it's not got bits of track where you just think ah uh, yeah let's get them around there and because because uh, Stone around turn one there in particular was something you always seem to find something really special around there and we know everything we know the history of the corkscrew yeah uh, but, but that'd be great yeah can we do that let's yeah. get them on I'm going to have to start writing these down and, and building up a little league table with <laughs> these answers so excellent well any uh, particular social media links that you want to shout out where people can find you? I mean, obviously, BT Sport is your primary uh, point. It's of, my uh, home, work. yeah. I'm on Twitter at Gary Emmett, Instagram too, and on Cameo now, actually. I've uh, signed up for Cameo, so I'm going to start promoting that in a bit, uh, which is quite a uh, little bit of fun to do uh, video messages for people. I don't think it's about me. I'm, I'm going to be trying to get a few MotoGP riders uh, to get on there. I don't know if you have you have you ever. I'm only peripherally aware of this thing. To be honest with you, you've, yeah, basically people you pay for a birthday message for your mate or for uh, your for Mother's Day. I don't know, do it right. Oh, you've got you've got a big soap star. There's a lot of people like that on there. Yeah. I'm going to try. I'm, I'm working with Cameo. I'm going to try and um, get a few MotoGP riders on there. I know some people are into it. I know a lot of people will be listening to this who are bike fans who are thinking, you are. What are you on about? <laughs> Paying money? Give it over. Yeah, yeah, because that's what I would do. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that, that was a pretty passable impression of Neil Hodgson there. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was more my dad, if I'm being honest, because uh, he is the proper old Yorkshire man, is my dad. But... Yeah, that's another one on Cameo. I, there's a lot of people who do like it, and it's quite a nice uh, little way, if you are a fan of the sport, to, to get some, you know, a bit personalised from one of your heroes. I think it'd be nice if we could get some, yeah. you know, popular people on there. So, yeah. Cool. But uh, I'm usually to be found on Twitter. I took a year off from it last year with the birth of a child because it was just too much. I, can't, um, I wasn't at races. I couldn't bring anything to the party over COVID and, mm. and that time, other than doing the podcast that we did. And so it just didn't seem... 
you know, what you know, what am I chipping in here for? But I'm trying to do a little bit more this year on 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 those uh, channels. So. You have to be very careful on Twitter, don't you? Otherwise, you just get embroiled in arguments and nonsense. I'm good at ignoring. Actually, I am good at just saying, look, yeah, everyone's entitled to an opinion, absolutely. Uh, but I'm not. I can't be bothered getting into an argument no, about it. No. So. Well, again, thank you ever so much. Uh, maybe it's something it's we a can pleasure. do again at some point in the, in yeah. the future. That would be great because obviously it's uh, ten years since you were last on, so we'll try not to uh, leave it quite as long as that, perhaps. Well, you know, you might get really, you might get the sort of feedback you think well, ten years was actually it was too soon. It was too soon. <laughs> I'm sure that won't be the case, but our listeners are very good at uh, giving us some comments. So hopefully they'll do the same. I wish you uh, a safe and sound travel to Argentina. We look forward to seeing you on the telly. And um, yeah. Go and Emmett, thank you for coming on Motopod. Cheers, appreciate it, and I've enjoyed it. And uh, you seem to go from strength to strength. What is it, episode 603 million? Bloody hell. Yeah, we're going to hit 700 before long. So, um, yeah, Bob Hayes started it off. Oh, golly, I think back in about 2005. And it was like a little 10-minute ditty uh, back then. So now we sort of regularly hit two-hour shows. So, yeah, it's come on a bit. It was about then, myself and Matt Roberts started the official MotoGP podcast, which then became After the Flag, which then became everything right back in the day. Bloody yep. hell. That's when podcasting was, you know, uh, completely different to what it suddenly become. I mean, other people have invented podcasts since, haven't they? Yeah. But we were there back in the day. We were there, right? Yeah. Back at the start. Right at the start. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks, Gav. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Appreciate Cheers. it. Take care.